Welcome to the 32nd episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. In the podcast description, you will find a link that will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. Feel free to like and subscribe and maybe leave a comment. Tell us what you think of the podcast or maybe suggest a band we should look at in the future. Now here's Mark to introduce today's band. Born like so many others out of 1977's London punk scene, the psychedelic furs, however, seemed to deliberately stand out from the off. There was the name for a start, not very punk and more redolent of the despised 60s, if anything, and then there was the music. Often slower, moody, occasionally even lush, singer Richard Butler almost crooned his way through some of it, though he did seem to have the requisite amount of vitriol for the traditional topics of love and people in general. Never a huge critical or commercial favourite, they nevertheless struck a chord with new wave-hungry audiences around the world and continue to this day. Over the course of four albums released from 1980 to 1984, we'll examine where the furs went right or wrong, the hits and the misses, and where they fit into post-punk rock's rich tapestry. Guys? Mm, psychedelic furs, how do we feel about them? Well, I wanted to say why are we talking about them first because I think a few mm. people would probably ask that question. Not that they don't fit into the time frame, but what is it about them that makes them worth talking about? Well, I think they occupy a pretty unusual position in that yeah, they're, they're often ignored in discussions of post-punk. I mean, Simon Reynolds' legendary book, Rip It Up and Start Again, you know, the post-punk kind of Bible, they're mentioned once and only as one of these kind of MTV-type acts you know, towards the end of the post-punk era, they're sort of not taken very seriously in some ways as a post-punk band because they weren't quite a cult band. They were never a top 10 band. They're sort of somewhere in that, in that weird space where they never quite made it either way. Did we start at the start? Patrick, oh. you've got some, some back history, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I've found Psychedelic First to be the hardest to research of all the bands we've done since we started doing these podcasts. Um, so in terms of what primary school singer Richard Butler went to, I've got nothing. So uh, Mark, Brian, have you guys got anything on that front? I know that they were brought up in Middlesex or thereabouts. That's all I could really find before mm. yeah. maybe moving to London later. I mean, I mean, obviously there's two brothers is the key to the story, um, Richard Butler yeah. and Tim Butler. I would still tie this back to, you know, we don't know too much about their prior history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the little bits and pieces I've been able to, to kind of put together were, as you know, Richard Butler, Singer Richard Butler was born in 1956, Kingston-upon-Thames, which is a leafy part of southwest London, quite close to Wimbledon. And Kingston-upon-Thames was the birthplace of Rat Scabies from The Damned, Stephen Wilson, Tom Rowlands from Chemical Brothers, and uh, Stormzy, the rapper, currently lives there. So it's a hotbed, Kingston-upon-Thames. Mm, musical hotbed. Yeah. But a couple of years later, younger brother Tim Butler was born in Teddington, which is quite nearby. Teddington's claim to fame, as far as I'm concerned, is that Noel Coward was born there and Benny Hill died there. So, you know. Well, you've got the history of comedy right there. <laughs> That's right. Bookended perfectly, yeah. Should we move to the family of the butlers or to the punk influence, <laughs> to Let's, family friends? Let's go uh, leave the think? family dog out of it for once. 
Maybe we talk about what what seems to be the the beginnings of the band, I suppose, you know, the Mm. usual seminal moment. It revolves around the punk rock movement, the the, the two brothers reading about the Sex Pistols in the the daily papers and deciding to go and see them at um, 76, I think it was late 76, and deciding we could do that. And the usual story of you don't have to be musically proficient, fantastic at anything, you can just get up there and have a go, which they did. I think they saw the Pistols a couple of times. I've actually got a, a couple of quotes from um, from Tim Butler, who seems to be quite sort of chatty about these things, saying, you know, that they saw Sid Vicious playing there, they saw a lot of different things, and it just basically motivated them to go that they could do that. So Richard and I were living in, in Muswell Hill at the time, where the Kinks came from. Richard, uh, Richard was going to art school, and we decided that, that we wanted to form a band after seeing this. And that seemed to be the beginnings for them. Richard was, was an artist, obviously, and Tim wasn't really doing much at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and Richard was one of the classic criticisms, and probably just about the main reason why there's a certain amount of ambivalence about psychedelic furs, is because there's, they had this hint of revivalism about them, hmm. as if they were like their 60s influences, even if it was partly kind of joking, like they were kind of in on some joke about, you know, just trying to choose the name that would annoy punk fans the most. So having the word psychedelic in the band name, the word furs from Venus in Furs, Velvet Underground song, you know, all of that was kind of like a bit of a nod and a bit of a wink, I think, to Mm. the fact that as far as psychedelic furs were concerned, there was no ground zero for music. Even though that was their starting point, and Tim Butler, the bass player, basically took up bass because he was a big fan of JJ Burnell and he wanted to not play guitar and I think just be involved in the bottom end. So the punk thing is really, really important to their genesis. Yes, yeah, yeah. they almost decided from the very beginning that they weren't going to be a punk band. Yeah, yeah. Richard grew up being absolutely obsessed with Bob Dylan, for instance. So um, their dad, who was a research chemist um, and a communist and an atheist, he uh, brought Bob Dylan Records home and apparently, you know, old man Butler would, would would sit down with the kids and just like they'd, they'd listen to the Dylan records and try and work out what they thought the Dylan songs, you know, were, were all about. So mm. that was a crucial part of like a very unpunk in a way, kind of backdrop to all this. But Richard did say it wasn't until punk came along that I realised I could be a musician. There wasn't really anything to stop me apart from Rick Wakeman on television telling me how much his keyboards cost. <laughs> so it was the... Classic thing, similar to bands like XTC, uh, Ian Jury, The Stranglers Bands, who are a bit older, who punk was a springboard for them without them really kind of needing the Sex Pistols to inspire them. It was it was a means to an end in a way. Well, it was the catalyst. I mean, they formed their own band in February 77, not known as the Psychedelic Furs immediately, but that's pretty much the height of punk, if you want, with various members. Did they have the saxophonist in the first lineups? Because that's pretty unpunk. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> um, right. That's right. They gradually assembled a six-piece band. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how they did it. Yeah, I mean, saxophone is probably just about my least favourite instrument in the full sort of range. It's sort really? of a must. Yeah. You're not I, a Baker I, Street fan? No, well, well, apart from Baker Street, <laughs> apart from the odd exception, it is the mustard gas of music as far as I'm having it. Wow. So, well, don't, don't say that to um, X-Ray Spec. I know you're a big fan of this. <laughs> yeah. 
They love yeah. a bit of saxophone. Or, or Hall and Oates for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, all, the, okay. all, the punk, all the punk and post-punk breaks we're name-checking here, Graham. <laughs> yes. So we've got the band going through various permutations. We've got a couple of early names there for us, Patrick. Yes, well, guitarist John Ashton and Roger Morris, drummer Vince Eli, if that's who you pronounce the name, uh, and Duncan Kilburn on saxophone. And Simon Butler, a third Butler brother, was in the band to start with but ended up not being in the band. No one in the band really knew how to play and they started off doing like 10, 15-minute jams in those early gigs which, again, was not a really kind of punk thing to do. I mean, Susie and the Banshees, I think their first gig was like a 20-minute rendition of um, The Lord's Prayer. Is that right? That's right. But typically you would have a two-minute song or three-minute uh, three minutes of thrashing. So they were already trying to do something a little bit different, and they were influenced by Velvet Underground, by Roxy Music, by Bowie, by Dylan, lyrically maybe, like a lot of other bands, except they kind of wore their influences much more on their sleeve than other bands who were maybe who had more of the kind of classic punk pretensions to ripping it up and starting again. As a six-piece band, how many six-piece bands were there on the scene in 1977? Not many. That's probably why it took them so long to get to their first uh, album. Yeah, yeah, three years, which is amazing. It's a hell of a long time to persevere and uh, then eventually the tide started to turn. Yeah, it, it took them a while to be, I don't know, accepted or maybe their time was coming because they did sound like a punk band initially. But when you listen to the first album, especially with songs like Sister Europe, you see that they were actually doing something a little bit different. And uh, yeah, that, yeah. That, that wouldn't have sat right in 77, 78. Or 79, 77, 78, 79. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there a slower tempo post-punk song in the first two or three years of post-punk than Sister Europe? Than Sister Europe, yeah, I don't think so. Possibly not, and certainly not in that melodic style as well. I mean, I, I should point out that their first album came out in March 1980, self-titled yeah. album, which is not, yeah. it's not really three years, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a fair old whack of time for, for nothing to happen given sort of how fevered the atmosphere was at the time. But, yeah, look, should we talk about this first album? Take us through it. March 1980, uh, produced by Steve Lillywhite, who was making a bit of a name for himself at the time, had worked on Susie and the Banshees, mm. the members, and XTC, I think, mm. at that stage of his mm. career. Um, uh, he was up been doing some work on Peter Gabriel's third solo album around that time as well, but it was happening really slowly. So he could more or less go off and record the Psychedelic Furs album, you know, like on his weeks off while Peter was just having a think about track two and track three. It's still strange to me that they managed to get such a big name producer in for the for their first album, really, given that they hadn't done anything. And you're right, yes, Graham, Sister Europe is, is such a change of pace. After the first track, India, which is a bit of a kind of a call to arms, a bit of a kind of a driving rock song that you'd expect. But look, it's all about Richard's voice. The psychedelic first output is about Richard's voice. And from the very first time you hear them, you go, right, okay, well, this is something different. He's got a real quality. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah, what yeah. his influences are. There's a bit of Bowie in there. There's yeah, a bit of yeah. In his delivery. He was the most charismatic guy. Yeah, well, I was yeah, going to say, he had a bit, of a bit of a Mick Jagger kind of vibe too with the, with the moods, I thought, too. Yeah, so yeah. He was copying so, all of the uncool things. Yeah. And, Graham, you listed this first album as mm. one of your top five post-punk favourites. To what extent was Richard's voice a factor in that? 
it was all him, his look and his, I shouldn't say seductive voice. Why not? I'll say seductive. Go on, Graham. Go for it. (laughs) Love is love, Graham. (laughs) No one's going to ask any questions. And obviously Sister Europe had a big effect on me when I first heard it. I remember hearing it on Triple Z and wondering what the hell, who was this? And it was almost, there's elements on that first album that are almost prog rock, especially Mm. the the introduction to India. Yeah, Um, yeah. um, Before it gets into the punk style, there's a whole lot going on there. The slow fade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even the the hippie imagery, we were told, (laughs) being obedient punks, that we weren't supposed to like hippie imagery. But I found it quite um, interesting at the time, the fact that they were doing this. But he also had a bit of a a snarl to his voice. He has his favourite words. He likes to use the word stupid and fools. (laughs) He uses the word stupid over 15 times on this first album, or calls people or things (laughs) stupid. (laughs) There's a bit of a John Lydon thing in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sarcastic thing, yeah. Yeah. Regarding Richard's voice, um, during the course of researching for for the podcast, I started collecting descriptions by by other people of his voice. And among the adjectives were menacing, rasping, husky, caustic, cigarette cured, half tortured, mothballs in his mouth. (laughs) But my favorite was from a fellow called Ed Ward of the Austin American Statesman, which is a newspaper, not a car. And uh, in 1980, he said uh, that Richard sounds like a crow with laryngitis. So, you know, the, the kind of diversity of opinion. Oh, these are the fans. These are the fans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so out of all the post-punk bands we've covered, I wonder whether there's a band in which the singer is more instrumental both literally and figuratively in the sound yeah i would say next next to public image probably no this is probably Mm. the main band because you know it's them immediately as soon as he opens his mouth it's him you you can hear that Um, yeah yeah so and and the dylan influence is really evident i was going to say on a song like um was it pulse One of the songs where he's sort of like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what that Dylan song is for the one where he holds up the cue cards. Yeah. I'm not a big Dylan fan. Um, I did also want to drop in a little story about Sister Europe, which you guys know about as well, because Steve Lillywhite, so the story goes, told him to sing it more than than shouting it. So to sort of slow the song down and do it in a more of a, a gentle way. And it's about his girlfriend leaving and going to Italy, of course. Yeah, yeah. He said to Richard, why don't you, you know, go to the pub, have a few beers, and come back and pretend it's three o'clock in the morning and you're, you're talking to her on the phone, which I thought was a great production technique uh, as opposed yeah, yeah, to yeah. shouting. And then and Richard apparently said, you know, well, I called it this and I did it in that style because I didn't just want to say I'm sad because my bird's gone to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> that's right. Which, which was a much nicer thing to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Um, I think it might have been um, Subterranean Homesick Blues. That's the track, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a bit of that on there. I also think that the wedding song sounds like Four Walls, the public image song. Ah, uh, okay, 
yeah, yeah. That Nick Lorna and Steve Lillywhite had something to do with um, from Flowers of Romance. The drums on it are very, very heavy and kind of have that vibe, uh, which I like a lot. Graham, the, um, I was going to say your favourite song's Imitation of Christ, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. To the extent, Graham, that you called out for it when you went to see the psychedelic first play. Is that true or not? Is that, is that what happened? Do you really want me to go over this story again? Come on. You've only, you've only told it once before. <laughs> Well, you got to understand that I was pressed up against the stage at the um, uh, Psychedelic Furs concert, which was in uh, March 83 in Brisbane. It was at Festival Hall, supported by the Drop Bears, I believe. I was shouting out for the band to play Imitation of Christ. Then they started playing it towards the end, and as they were singing it, I realised that I was actually shouting out the wrong words. I wanted him to play Impersonation of Christ. Which is a different track. I do want to say that I have no idea what Imitation of Christ is about. I love his lyrics, but I, I find it very difficult to understand a lot of the time yeah, what he's yeah, talking yeah. about. Unless it's very obvious what he's talking about, like uh, in Sister Europe. Which I always was didn't know what it was about. I always thought it was about incest. <laughs> I think it says more about you than anything. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> well, Richard did say about his lyrics, I like lyrics to be oblique because I think that's where poetry happens in a way. I don't get Bruce Springsteen particularly. He'll set out and write a story and it always sounds vaguely corny at the end of the day. And I think that sort of space that he gives is really important because it was it was very unpost-punk as well because the political kind of diatribes were, you know, like of the clash and so on. Just tell people what you reckon. Laid on the line was, you know, one of those kind of classic post-punk things. It was that sort of Dylan influence, I think, of just trying to be a bit more kind of evocative, a bit more three-dimensional. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Look, I think it was a great first time. I remember hearing it at the time and like Graham thinking, what is this? This is really quite different to what I've what else I've been hearing. It had a kind of wall of sound, which I liked. It was big and loud. Yeah, it had, yeah. It had different tempos and different moods. And like I said, his voice is impossible to go past. I think he's one of the, the greatest vocalists of that period. Yeah, Not yeah. for his technical ability. He's just blessed with this incredible mm. emotive voice, which just adds depth and and beauty to, to the songs that they do. And that first album had that in space. You know, they only released two singles off it, I think, but, but the whole album really hung together really well for me. I mean, and it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a success too. I mean, it was a UK number 18. 18, 18 yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not so much in the US. I don't think it even cracked the top 100 no, there. No, no, But it, it certainly would have had an impact um, on, on, you know, a lot of aspiring musicians, and they're often talked about as a band that had a big influence on bands that came after them. Yeah. But, uh, well, I think the discipline of a six-piece band somehow kind of holding it together the way that they did. I mean, at times there is a wall of sound with the kind of dueling guitars. You know, you'll hear one, if you've got the headphones on, you'll hear one roaring guitar line through one ear and you know another one through the other ear but it always feels controlled and mm. the phrase what a beautiful chaos is that the phrase that kind of keeps coming up but it never feels chaotic to me it always feels like they know exactly what they're doing they're kind of cutting loose but they know what they're doing and that's really difficult to do I think that they were all learning to play and learning to arrange songs and learning to find their space in a song which they did later on as well a little bit more yeah, yeah. Yeah, great um, first statement, great first album. In terms of how it was received 
in the media. Um, Melody Maker said, Richard Butler achieves more in three minutes than F. Scott Fitzgerald could in 300 pages, as in the, uh, great, the great Gatsby author, which, That's you know, is so cool. a, little, a little bit of a stretch. But the New York Daily News said their music is horrible, just horrible. <laughs> so you go, on the one hand, F. Scott Fitzgerald, on the other hand, Terrible. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. The truth, as usual, probably lies in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. So album two? I, I was just going to drop in the uh, the EP that they recorded with uh, oh. Martin Hannett after this. Okay. Uh, between the albums, which was a four-track EP, Martin Hannett being the famous Joy Division producer, um, yep. a certain yep. ratio amongst others, probably one of our favourite producers. He produced yeah, yeah. a four-track EP, Susan Strange, Soap Commercial, So Run Down, and another track whose title eludes me, yeah. uh, which you can't find and wasn't released for shelved for some reason, but is added onto the various uh, you know, remastered versions of the first album. I think you can get at least Susan Strange and Soap Commercial on the, the remastered version of this. Worth a listen because the sound is a lot emptier was my point I was going to make mm. talking about the wall of sound. He gives them a bit of space and a bit of room to do yeah, yeah. What, what he would like to see them do, whether it's a success or not, I don't know, because obviously it didn't really see the light of day. But um, interesting and worth a listen. Anything Martin Hannett uh, twiddles the knobs on is worth a listen. So, yes, album two. Graham, do you want to uh, talk us talk, through? Talk, 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 talk. <laughs> it was called Talk, 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 just the three. This was released uh, June 6th, 1981. Yeah, a little over 40 years ago. Produced by Steve Lee White again. I really love this album. I bought it when it came out. But um, I thought that it was a bit more disciplined, I think. The songwriting, the sax was uh, featured uh, a lot more. I did notice that uh, listening to this album, he doesn't mind it if verses don't rhyme. So um, in I Want to Sleep With You, he says, I didn't want to fade in you and make my own scenes. These go-go girls are happening. They're just like accidents. Doesn't rhyme at all. There's no rhyming anyway. There's no rhyming anyway. It's poetry. It's just beauty. That's right. It's like he wasn't even trying. At the time, I didn't mind. That so. rhymes. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see how easy that was? It was bang. You just took it. <laughs> You're a natural rhyme. I liked a lot of his lyrics on this. Now, now, Mark, in Pretty in Pink. Yes. You said you had a problem with the lines, she waves, she buttons your shirt, the traffic is waiting outside, she hands you this coat, she gives you her clothes, these cars collide. I've got a problem with these cars collide, that line. It makes, it it just has no, I can't get it. I don't understand it. I think the cars are are reacting to the fact that she has no clothes on. Is that that what it is? Or that she buttoned his shirt. Maybe that was their reaction because that would probably make me crash my car. Mm. He says that the traffic is waiting outside, so the cars don't appear out of nowhere. He has mentioned the traffic. Mm. <laughs> the cars colliding. By the way, there was a band called These Cars Collide. And a band called Traffic, too. <laughs> <laughs> and a singer called Pink. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. It's all making sense now. Yeah, <laughs> no, look, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, but I just never understood mm. it. It's just a bit of a thrown away sort of line. A little bit like Imitation of Christ, if I can just go back to the first <laughs> album. I find that chorus really, really annoying. The song's going long, going on. I said this to Graham. And the chorus is from a completely different song. It has, seems to have no bearing at all to the song. And I, every time I hear it, I go, 
they're just two songs that they've jammed together. Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe that's what he does a little with his lyrics. That's part of that kind of random poetry thing. He has images and things and he just goes, that sounds good, that'll work. We'll just chuck it in there. And maybe that's what These Cars Collide was an attempt at. Mm. There you go. Well, I, I think we've cracked the code. <laughs> um, I would like to say that uh, there were three singles on this album, Mr Jones, Dumb Waiters, which is great, and Pretty in Pink, which we were just yep. talking about. Yep. Um, we'll talk about Pretty in Pink in a minute, I think. But I would mm. just like to say I found this album a little bit more aggressive lyrically. Like he had songs like I Just Want to Sleep With You, mm. uh, No Tears, Into You Like a Train, which is yeah. doesn't leave much to the imagination. Did you know that track had a special uh, release in Melbourne? special limited edition for Triple R is called Into You Like a Tram. I don't know, that's, <laughs> that's not very well known. Anyway, great songs. All of This and Nothing is also good and She is Mine. Uh, I, I think it's probably their most complete out of the two albums anyway. I really liked it. I think the first and second albums seem like a bit of a continuum to me and I love maybe half of the first album and half of this second album, and they seem really similar to me. And Richard described the first album as a wall of rhythm and the second album as a wall of melody, which I think is an interesting distinction which which I don't really get. But I think you are maybe alluding to that, Graham. Yeah, I think on this album he refined his lyrics and the melodies were probably a little more accessible than on the first album. You know, No Tears has the very 60s jangly guitar at the beginning. Uh, all of this and nothing, which is a song I love, had a, has an acoustic guitar intro, which was quite unusual for the time. Yeah, yeah. And the lyric, I had to pay the doorman to let me use the door. I had to pay a muscle man to get me off the floor. I thought the lyrics on this album were streets ahead of the first album. Right, yeah, yeah. But I, uh, I do agree with you that stylistically, this was a continuation of the first album. You didn't leave me These two albums were done with almost, you know, a year or so between them. So, yeah. you know, like the classic first couple of albums for most bands. I mean, we, sh we should talk about Pretty in Pink because it's probably, them, as Patrick and I were talking about earlier, their most well-known song to this day, mm -hmm. given the movie uh, that was named after it five years later, I think it was. Yeah. The version on the album is the one that I am most familiar with. should talk about it, I suppose. It was re-recorded for the Molly Ringwald, John Hughes movie in 1986. And it's not a very good version. It's nowhere near as good. It sounds like the E Street Band doing the psychedelic first. It's, it's a bit looser and a bit lame. And, and apparently they wanted it re-recorded because the producers thought the guitars were out of tune. And huh? the original version and that they weren't happy with it. So the psychedelic first heard this and said, well, if you're going to redo it, we'll record it again to your satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and obviously they put it out and it was a much bigger hit uh, yeah. uh, five years later. I think it was number 43, charted in 43 yeah. uh, in 1981 and then 18 in 1986. So it was a much bigger hit for them, certainly in America. Yeah. Um, and the story goes, as you guys would know, that, that Molly Ringwald, the actress in the film, was a fan of the song, loved the band, and said to John Hughes, you should write a movie based on this 
song. Uh, he obviously agreed he was a big fan of a lot of this type of music. But they famously, the band, talk about how he got the song wrong. It's not about, it's not a rom-com, it's not about a teenage girl getting the, getting the guy at the end. Mm. It's about a, about a girl who's a little uh, casual with her favours, mm. as, uh, as the saying goes, and uh, that everybody's kind of laughing at her behind her back. And so the, mm. the song couldn't be any different from what the movie ended up being. really like Pretty Thing, the song, but I think the most distinctively psychedelic Thursish songs on that album are songs like It Goes On. So Run Down, I Just Want to Sleep With You, with the kind of the dueling guitars, because that feels to me like the signature aspect of the psychedelic first sound apart from Richard's voice, which no other band was doing that as far as I can recall. And the kind of driving sound, there was so much happening technologically around that era with synthesizers and drum machines and the effects you could put on sounds and all that. And psychedelic first weren't doing any of that, but they still sounded like like no other band. Yeah, they really didn't use synths, did they? They stuck with the sort of saxophone and Mm. And, and that sort of sound that they had. It was a poppier sound than the first album, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously it had one eye on America because it did, it did well in America, well, top 100 yeah. anyway, and, and a top 30 in the UK. But you're right, I think those two albums are, are, are of, a, of a piece. They're companions to each other. Mm. Um, and the guitar chords they use, Graham, you're a, you're a bit of a guitar chord kind of guy. What, did they use kind of peculiar sort of chord inversions or whatever? Because there's something sort of slightly out of tune or slightly not quite right at times, which I think makes their songs really distinctive. There's something slightly off which which works really well. Yeah, I don't know whether there was anything particularly unique about the guitar chords. They certainly weren't sort of anti-partridge in their, you know, odd inversions. But mm. I think maybe sometimes it's that wall of sound thing. So you've got all of these guitar sounds with all of the flanges and echoes, and then all of a sudden there's this saxophone in there as well. Yeah, yeah. It can sometimes be quite overwhelming. Um, mm, mm. But, yeah, no, I'd have to drill down and, and uh, have a closer look to the chord. Yeah, not trying to put you on spot there, Graham, about something that you might completely disagree with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, next, released in September 25th, 1982, was the uh, commercial breakthrough for them, which was Forever Now. And it was produced by Todd Rundgren. And um, you always know when Todd Rundgren is your producer because the first song features a tubular bells solo. something you uh, you don't often hear on a post-punk album. No. But uh, I really love this. Like, I think my interest in Psychedelic Furs was waning just a bit after that second album. But once I heard Love My Way on the radio, yeah. I was back on board big time. Yeah. 
So I bought this album straight away. Did you guys buy this? Well, anything that, that the producer of Bad Out of Hell does is, you know, I'm on board with straight away, as you know. So Todd Rundgren, I think he's a great producer, actually. I think he's got a really wide range of tricks up his sleeve. And I think yeah. what he what he brought to this group was session musicians because the band was now a four-piece. Yeah, uh, yeah. Duncan Kil Kilburn on sax had left and uh, Roger Morris, one of the guitarists, had left. So they were mm. down to a four-piece. There was a bit of disharmony within the ranks. And I think Todd had some interesting production ideas and, and um, I don't think Steve Lillywhite was available. Though there was talk of David Bowie coming on board to do it, but wow. I think the band kind of ended up not being able to make it work with Bowie. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, Love My Way is probably their second most uh, well-known song. Probably the one of the band's favourite songs, I think. Mm. Uh, sorry, favourite albums. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, look. I was sort of like you, Graham. I was back when I heard this, and it, it's such a sweet song. A mm. uh, little two chord intro thing, fantastic, and, and a big hit, and kind of did well for them in America. Mm. And, and spawned and, a television show in Australia. Was that what you were going to say, Patrick? Uh, no, I was going to say that Todd plays marimba on the song. I was, I was going to set the scene a little bit in terms of the departure of the two members because I think Todd signed up to produce the album when they were a six-piece band and then only four of them turned up and mm. they've, they've lost at least a third of their sound. It's like, well, what is this going to be like? And John Ashton, the uh, guitarist, said that the departure of those two guys was a really big mistake. They should have been better advised and they should have kept those guys on. But given the fact that the two guitars was you know, such a signature of the first sound, what on earth is this album going to sound like? And it turned out, I think, that Todd was absolutely perfect for the job because he knew every musician in mm. the States and he just got some extraordinary people on board, like a cellist, like a classically trained but like talented jazz playing cellist. He got uh, Flo and Eddie on yeah, backing Eddie vocals. Mm. Um, Which the band weren't too keen on in the first yeah, place. Yeah, they, yeah. Weren't, they weren't too happy until until I heard them sing, and then they were like, "What? Well, what else can we get them on? Because these are these yeah, guys." Are yeah, yeah. They were in what band were they in? The Turtles. The Turtles. The Turtles yep. With uh, what? Happy Together. Is that the song? And they had sung backing vocals on the T Rex. Songs they'd sung back and vocals on "Hungry Heart," the Springsteen. The Springsteen song that was uh, that was actually when I first yeah. heard of Flo and Eddie was the. But the, they were proper hippies, or they looked like hippies. And yet, when they turned up, yeah, either Flo or Eddie said they didn't like the idea a, as in psychedelic furs, didn't like the idea a of having anybody but them on the record, or b anybody background singing. Period, because that represented establishment to these guys, and these guys were trying, in their minds at least, to be the most anti-establishment punks since, since the Sex Pistols. Nobody told them that they weren't. <laughs> so that was slightly that was slightly kind of sceptical and, and that was sort of like a comedy duo, Flo and Eddie as well. So they were like an act unto themselves. But they ended up getting along really well with the band, I think. And their backing vocals on Love My Way and a couple of the other songs are just fantastic. They weren't supposed to sing on Love My Way, that they actually um insisted on singing on it. They loved the song. Yeah, they said we want to sing on the hit, you know, we want to be on this because yeah. this is going to be the hit and they and they were right. Does anybody know the story about how this song ended up 
being an Australian television show or is it just the, the, the name of the track and they went, this sounds like a great idea for a TV show? Probably the latter. I never really watched the show, so I didn't. I, I didn't it, watch it, it either. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. I saw online that the Australian band Magic Dirt had recorded a version for the TV show, but I don't think I ever remember hearing it on the show. But then again, I didn't really watch it either. <laughs> It's also been featured in um, in a couple of movies recently, wasn't it? In Stranger Things, uh, yeah, the, was, the TV yeah. show, and also uh, Call Me by Your Name, I think featured it quite extensively, mm. which was a film from a couple of years ago too. In terms of TV series, the most significant one in relation to Love My Way is the fact that during recording the album, Todd had to leave the studio at a certain time every night because Hill Street Blues was on. And he was a, a huge Hill Street Blues fan, <laughs> which it's not very rock and roll. Didn't own a video recorder. No, no, that's right. As an album, I think for me, it is the Psychedelic Furs album. And it's probably in my top 10 post-punk favourite albums. I think on a song-by-song -song basis, just some really, really good songs. And there are surprises, little instrumental surprises all over the place, like the acoustic guitar bit on uh, President Gas the weird tinkly bell sound, possibly also on President Gas or maybe maybe on another song, maybe on Forever Now. And really interesting synth sounds, the backing vocals, the cello, all of that. Like, it's just really, really well put together. It's kind of commercial, but it's still got a lot of edge to it, I think. Sleep Comes Down is one of my favorite songs on this album. Sleep comes down. Sleep Comes Down has that really Beatlesque break with the strings and the vocals, which I really Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. And then the cellos, and President Gas is one of my favourite songs. It's got this really great chorus. I love the octave bass in the chorus. And then at some point the guitar line comes in in the chorus and it sounds like a riff from a spy movie or something. It's a really great song. Well, it's a fantastic album opener as well. It's like if you're a fan who've been listening to the first two albums, you know they've lost two key members. The opening chords of the opening song, it's like, you know, what's, what's the new album going to be like? And it's just absolutely brilliant. Amazingly, in the US, they chose a different opening track. They chose the title track, I think, to open it, which just sounds crazy to me. I don't think they heard a single. They didn't really hear anything um too strong on it, they thought, which they were wrong, of course. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. It turned out to do pretty well in the US. The album hit 61, the UK 20, which yep. isn't bad. I mean, I think they were a band that built slowly, didn't they? That was that they kind of kept expanding their fan base, kept touring. The two brothers were both living in the States by now as well. So I think that probably had something to do with it. A song like Run and Run, I think could easily have been a really big hit, for instance. In some ways, it's more commercial than, than Love My Way, but uh, wasn't to be.
And this is around the time they toured Australia, Graham, going back to your story. This was released at the end of 82 and they came out a few months later in February 83. Mm, yeah, that, that was... Um, which is when I saw them as well at Festival Hall in Brisbane. They did a lot of gigs in Australia. They played some smaller shows. They played at a venue in Sydney called Selena's in Coogee. And there's some great photos, if you should choose to Google them, of David mm. Bowie being backstage and uh, hanging out with Richard. <laughs> the story goes, apparently, the publicist of the first tour sent an invitation to Bowie's people to say, would you like to come and see the show at Selena's? And he agreed, and they ended up meeting in the bottle shop of the pub because Selena's is a pub. Yeah. David brought along the girl from China Girl, the video, who he was obviously yeah. seeing at the time, and met in the bottle shop. Now, Graham, you spent a lot of time in bottle shops over the years in one of your many careers before this, and you never saw David Bowie in a bottle shop. <laughs> no, nothing like that. He was making the China Girl video that day or something, wasn't it? Or yeah, yeah, just come from there? yeah, the following, like the following morning, something like that. At dawn, were they shooting like the, those scenes? Yeah. yeah. On the so beach? Obviously, he was getting into character with her. Um, we should also throw in that um, Phil Calvert from The Birthday Party was playing on this tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he played with them for a couple of years after Vince Eli left. Um, I think he didn't play drums on this album, I don't think. No, no, I don't think so. No, no. So Phil no. Calvert from Australian Hellraisers, The Birthday Party, yeah. <laughs> joins the psychedelic yeah. first. So when I saw them in Brisbane, I didn't know that. I didn't recognise him uh, behind the skins. But I think yeah, that's a, yeah. really, a really funny thing because he ends up, he doesn't yeah. record anything with them, but plays with them for two years. No, no, that's so, right. Do you remember much from the uh, the Brisbane concert, Mark? I just remember some lunatic yelling out imitation of <laughs> at, at the front of the stage. It's just bothering the band. I don't know who that was. And, and me being annoyed by the chorus coming in. No, I don't remember. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, at one point during the concert, uh, Richard Butler turning to the bass player and, his brother. and rolling his eyes because uh, it was John Ashton who was on guitar at that point, I think. Yeah. I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't playing the game, basically. And I could just see that they were visibly upset with him. Uh -huh. Had John Ashton left the band or been sacked after that, I totally yeah. would have <laughs> yeah. understood why. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they seemed to be both angry. You could see it coming. But I also wanted yeah. to mention there was a Radio 10 DJ, or it could have been called 4IP, I can't remember what they were, the commercial radio in Brisbane. There was a DJ there who really loved Love My Way, the single, and apparently he played it a lot. And then a few, about a week or so later, I happened to hear him on the radio, and after playing Love My Way, he said, that's Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs, great song, the band were terrible live, but this was uh -huh. a really good song. So I thought they were great. I don't know why yeah. he, thought, he thought they were so bad. I don't know what he was expecting, but um, I thought they were fantastic. Well, we all saw them. I, I'll just wait. Yeah. I thought it was a bit one-dimensional, the gig. I remember thinking it was okay. Mm. It didn't kind of rock me to my core. It was just like they played the songs. They did what you wanted. There wasn't a great deal of showmanship or interaction with the audience. It was a big venue. I don't know why they played Festival Hall in Brisbane and played smaller gigs throughout the rest of Australia, but maybe yeah. it was just to do one show in Brisbane and do five or six in Melbourne and Sydney. But, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed the gig, but it wasn't, you know, my my top ten gigs of all time, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I saw them play uh, in Melbourne. At, uh, typically that they would have played at an inner-city venue and they, they did play, I think, a handful of gigs in Melbourne, but I saw them at the Pier Hotel in Frankston, which is about 50 kilometres 
from the CBD. It's almost like a different town. And it's kind of better known as a hard rock kind of venue, the kind of venue where the likes of ACDC would have played. In fact, bands like the Angels and Australian Crawl, for our Australian listeners, would have done a lot of gigs there. Yes, so there were quite a few kind of surfy type people there, people going, why everyone's wearing black? Why is everyone wearing black? So the gig took a while to warm up, but I thought it was fantastic. But there were certainly mixed reviews of that tour. It's no surprise that there's even a bit of friction between the three of us here today. Should we move on to the final album, May 1984? Yeah, the final final album, for us anyway. Mirror Moves. Keith Forsey produced it, who had done Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me. Mm. Or was he about to? I think he's about to, I think. Well, let's say he he was close to doing it. And uh, maybe that was the connection to John Hughes, the director, because um, obviously John Hughes did The Breakfast Club. So Mm. possibly that was how they all came together for Pretty Mm. Pink a couple of years later. It's a poppier album to me. There's more sax in it. It's a little bit cleaner. It's a little bit more Another Eye on America had four singles on it and it was probably their most successful album to date. I really like it. You know, Heaven's a great song, Heartbeat, Ghost in You, they're all good songs. I don't know that it's the peak of their powers for me, but obviously the charts would disagree. Um, what do you guys feel mm. about it? Just to add a bit of a note, uh, what you're saying about having an eye on America, um, Richard and Tim Butler had actually moved to the US after Forever Now came out. So that's an indication of their focus on the US. And their dad had refused to come and visit them in the States because, you know, as I mentioned, he was an avid communist. And in those days, you had to fill in a form about whether you'd ever been a member of the Communist Party. And he just refused to kind of fill in the piece of paper. So I don't know whether he was a member of the Communist Party at any time, but it was like, you know, I'm not having that. So it's a dead giveaway. He's a commie for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying nothing. But Richard had said that they liked the more poppy sort of sound that Todd had given them and they wanted to kind of explore it further. And Keith Forsey had worked with Billy Idol on his first solo album. And that sort of likeable, kind of commercial, you know, energetic sort of punky, poppy sound, very much in keeping with the Billy Idol stuff. And in fact, at times the guitar work sounds a bit like Steve Stevens from the Billy Idol band and doesn't sound like that classic psychedelic first thing. It's obviously much more commercial. It does have that kind of 80s drum machine-y, Lynn drum kind of thing, which was beginning to sound like every other band. Orchestral Manus in the Dark was starting to sound like that, as were, you know, as was everyone else. It has lost a bit of that edge, but there are still, as you say, lots of really good songs on it. Graham? Yeah, I liked The Ghost in You. I thought that was really nice. even though it was probably a bit more of a traditional pop song. I liked Here Come Cowboys. He mentions cowboys a lot again. Um, (laughs) His lyrics, I thought, were were really good on this as well. Um, In Heaven, he says, uh, there's a hole in the sky where the sun don't shine and a clock on the wall and it counts my time. Uh, Rhyming couplets like that were really good, I think. So it was back to the rhyming. Yes, yes, he, well, he was actually rhyming at this point. I think someone may have had a word in his ear. (laughs) But, but I think he's got one of those voices, Graham, that, you know, that classic saying he could sing the phone book and it would sound great. Oh, I yeah. mean, his, his mm. voice, he is just unique and he, every one of their albums has that quality. They're so lucky to have had him as the front man. Stop. 
I absolutely loved Highwire Days, the uh, last track. One of my housemates at that time had this album. That vinyl in those days, and I just moved the needle to the beginning of Highwire Days, to the end, and then back again, and then back again, and then back again. God, you're and an yes, annoying little twerp, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I was. <laughs> I was home. I was home alone at the time, so it was fine. You know, I was. I was annoying no one but the next door neighbours. <laughs> I did read a review online about this album. The crushing wall of sound, the agitated saxophone, the interwoven guitars, and especially the rasping vocal of Richard Butler have been replaced by something so lifeless it should have medical staff pushing alarm buttons, reaching for defibrillators, and running around shouting, Code Blue! <laughs> so I thought that was a bit harsh, but it was just a bit frustrating that what was so distinctive about the sound on Forever Now, and Forever Now, you could release that in 2021, and it would fit in just you know, like there'd been none of that with this sound like an 80s band kind of thing whereas mirror moves just reeks of the 80s and it was their most successful album to date and probably where that we started to depart from them as fans is that a fair call mm. yeah, yeah 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 most probably i don't think i bought any other albums after mirror moves They themselves really liked the first four albums and didn't like the subsequent album, Midnight to Midnight, which came out in 1987, which I think might have been their most successful album. But yeah, so so they they kind of feel the same way that we do. So, have we reached the end of the psychedelic first story? What, what What's our general feeling on the band over this period? What have they contributed? What did they contribute? Well, they were one of my favourites in that they were a little too commercial to be seen as truly alternative and at the same time they were too alternative to sit comfortably with the, the top 40 crowd so for me there was enough angular chord progressions and uh, aggression in the music to keep it interesting and uh, there was the pop sensibility of a love my way or a pretty in pink that appealed to me on that level so um, I'm not sure where they sit in the post-punk pantheon, but uh, they surely... Oh, they sit somewhere. Yeah, they, they deserve a seat at the table, I think. I get the sense that from the beginning they weren't too fussed about where they sat in that kind of world. I mean, uh, Richard has said they were asking for it by choosing the name Psychedelic Furs, and they kind of kept that sort of independence from the post-punk scene, I think, all the way through. And they had no right to sound as individual and as fresh and as peculiar as they did with their fairly straightforward instrumentation in some ways. You know, there were no synths, no drum machines, the kind of classic things that were making bands sound different in that era, but they always sounded unique um, and they kept moving from one album to the next, albeit the first and second sounding pretty similar. Richard's voice, his lyrics were just completely unique and, yeah, I think they were a really special band who almost kind of transcend the kind of post-punk world. I think this story is worth telling. And as Patrick said, it's all about Richard's voice and that, that wall of sound was quite unique. I love the fact that there were two brothers in the band that actually get on, unlike uh, Oasis and, uh, and the Kinks. Um, yeah. I, also like the, I also like the fact that they're best known for a song that they don't particularly like, uh, which is Pretty mm. in Pink. Which I think that's fantastic. Yeah. But mm. I feel like all along they were sort of setting themselves up for, for the US breakthrough. They were one of the English bands that relied more on guitars, a lot less on keyboards. 
Um, they had songs that were easily digestible, and I think they were always going to be successful over there, probably better known in the US than the UK. And I also think that it's underestimated that their future impact on a lot of other bands that were coming, they're not really given credit for that. And I think that's something that they should be. And I think they occupy a nice little space in the post-punk pantheon. As you say, I only mentioned once by Simon Reynolds, but having said that, an important breakout from punk that started at the right place and ended at the right place.